On this episode of the BYO Nano Podcast, malt is our topic this month, and we'll get a report from one of the larger malting companies on what small brewers can do with grain. And then we'll head to a nano brewery and malt farm for insight into making the most from the land. This is John Hall, and welcome to episode 42. And a word on content. This show is for nano brewers, both existing and in planning. So tell us what you want to hear. What are the topics you want to learn more about? And what issues are you interested in? Who are the brewers you want to hear from? You can email us with all of those answers at nano at byo.com. And now on to the show. We spend a lot of time talking about raw ingredients and rightly so. They are the building blocks of every keg and pint and having the insight into ingredients makes us all better brewers and drinkers. This episode is focused on malt and we'll hear from two folks who come at it from two different lanes. Mike Scanzello is the director of brewing and distilling for Brees Malt. He's going to be up first and then we'll hear from Brett Bullock of Screamin' Hill Brewery. But first, a word of thanks to the show's sponsors and we hope you'll give them a closer look. Fermentus. Yeast is an incredible living microorganism. We've known for many years now that yeast has a crucial impact on the flavor profile and other sensory properties of beverages. It affects a wide range of characteristics, such as fruity and floral notes, phenolic or spicy character, the body of the beer, and more. The Fermentus Beer Yeast Strain lineup is designed to answer the requirements of all brewers, so release your creativity. Visit Fermentus.com to discover more about yeast behavior and characterization. Also, get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering the small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. Learn from craft beer experts, watching replays of past NanoCon seminars, plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash nano plus for more details. Let's get into the conversations. After graduating from Cutstown University in 1995, Mike Scanzello began his career at Stroh's Brewing in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Over the next six years, Mike would hold several positions in both the QA and brewing departments. In 2001, Mike moved to Wisconsin, accepting a position with Cargill at its Jefferson Junction Malt House after the Pennsylvania brewery closed. In 2007, Mike transitioned from operations management to the commercial side of Cargill's malt business, becoming an account executive with its specialty malt product group. In July of 2015, Mike brought his talents to Brees and joined as the National Distillery Manager. In February of 2016, Mike was promoted to the Director of Brewing and Distilling. He joined me via Zoom. Well, Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for doing this. And I'm wondering from, from your vantage point where you sit right now, how is 2023 shaping up malt-wise? Yeah. Um... I think 2023 uh, is, uh, you know, definitely uh, continues to be a bit of a challenge um, as we've, you know, moved past uh, the COVID area and all of the shutdowns. Um, what we've seen is um, consumers, really their behaviors have, have changed and, and uh, the assumptions that, you know, we were going to go back to, you know, 2019 uh, kind of levels right away uh, is certainly not the case. Um, 
I personally feel that um, you know people have learned and are consuming more at home. They're on-premise consumption, uh, while it's certainly rebounding, uh, hasn't come back to the 2019 levels. Uh, and uh, we're still seeing some incredibly strong pressures um, from, um, you know, beyond beer beverages, uh, your seltzers, your um, uh, ready-to-drink cocktails, and uh, other FMBs. Are, are still very quite popular and, and certainly taking up uh, shelf space on the off-premise uh, lane as well. So um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a tight market and uh, everyone's fighting for some market share these days. So what does that mean for, for the growers and then ultimately the consumers, some of those headwinds that you just talked about? Yeah, so barley... Um, you know, when I first started in this industry, uh, especially on the malting side uh, in 2001, um, there was a f- still a fairly robust uh, uh, feed market for barley. Uh, but what you've seen, um, and everybody was saying that, you know, barley is going to become a, a specialty crop, and and sure enough, it, it certainly has, and uh, you don't find um, too much uh, barley being grown by farmers specifically for feed any mm-hmm. longer. And really that that's really has to do with uh, the advent of ethanol production for fuel uh, and uh, uh, distillers, dried grains or DDGs flooding the feed market. Um, so really to get growers to produce barley, uh, you have to actively contract uh, with the growers. So that's probably fairly new in the last five to six, seven, eight years, where you've definitely um, being able to passively pick up barley off the open market uh, is, is really not done any longer. Um, it's really forced maltsters and other uh, larger brewers to uh, really focus on their grower relationships to make sure that they're getting uh, enough barley to meet their customers' needs and future needs. So that's kind of changed a little bit of the landscape. Yeah. So we're about a month removed from the annual uh, Craft Brewers Conference, and a lot of folks were down in Nashville. And I, I think the for better or for worse, the, the, the question often becomes from uh, uh, brewers and writers and anybody else who's interested is, um, what's new? What's exciting? And um, I, I, I imagine you got that question uh, quite a bit and, and, and get it. So um, what is new? What is exciting in, 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 in your world that brewers should be paying attention to? Yeah, you know, um, I always, uh, when I was down in Nashville, I always like to... Uh, uh, go to the keynote and hear the status of the industry talk, and and uh, I, I really look for um, really what what we're seeing as as the trends in the industry. And the other uh, uh, place that I kind of pick up some information, uh, believe it or not, is uh, attending the uh, award ceremony for either the GABF or the World Beer Cup because you could kind of uh, read the tea leaves and look at how many entrants uh, are put in for these particular categories to, to see kind of um, what what's hot and, and, and maybe what's not. And um, 
So obviously you're seeing uh, large categories, um, the lighter, more sessionable beers um, like Pilsen and Hellas and Kolsch um, are, are becoming Mexican lagers, uh, becoming very, uh, very popular. Uh, maybe a little bit on the West Coast, uh, you see, uh, I was wondering why our brown rice flakes were flying off the shelf. And um, there's definitely some West Coast brewers doing Japanese style light lagers. Um, IPAs still uh, rule the category and, and hazies are still uh, the top of, of the IPA category. Um, so that hasn't changed too much, but boy, everyone seems to want to do either a non-alcoholic beer or a low alcoholic beer. Um, and uh, you're seeing uh, athletic brewing going to have some more competition in, in, in that lane and that market as well. The one thing uh, you also see is kind of the other end of the spectrum. Um, you see a lot of uh, big imperial beers and stouts and dessert style stouts. So it seems like it's kind of uh, popular from one end of the spectrum to the other. And maybe the last uh, category that I, I, I definitely saw not only um, down in Nashville, but uh, even recently um, had an opportunity to go to the Firestone Walker Invitational Beer Fest uh, the other week. And, you know, a lot of sour beers. Um, there's a huh. good, good amount of sour beers, uh, very light, fruity, uh, pleasant summer kind of sour beers uh, at the festival. Uh, and even it, at the World Beer Cup, I was surprised to see uh, the amount of entrance in some of the sours categories. So, so how does a company like Breeze then uh, rise to you know that diversity of styles? Well, it's uh, what's nice uh, at Breeze is um, we really have, um, especially if you account for the extracts. Um, and the concentrated brewers warts and, and uh, some of the, the flake products we make at our Instagram facility, we really have um, probably one of the largest brewing ingredient portfolios, you know, all being manufactured under one roof. So I look at um, how we could either tailor some of our existing uh, products to meet some of the ongoing trends. And, and we certainly have a couple different um, great base malts to, to use both uh, Pilsen or uh, even our Gold Pils Vienna uh, and Pale base malts are excellent for, you know, producing um, some of those light, more sessionable beers. Still want some good flavor out of them. Uh, but then even uh, the big imperial beers, uh, we have a lot of products and we're the largest U.S. roaster um, of uh, not just uh, uh, caramel malts, but even uh, all the way up to your chocolate and black malts as well. So um, whatever style they're looking to make, uh, we, we, we have something uh, uh, for them. Yeah. You were talking about extracts um uh, a, a minute ago. Can you go a little bit deeper into that? Cause I know I've talked to some brewers recently who have been um, curious about um, potentially adding some of that into their, their professional operations. 
Yeah, um, all of our extracts, uh, we actually run um, the front end of our extract plant is a 500 barrel uh, brew house. Um, and so um, we're actually the, the second largest uh, uh, brew house in Wisconsin uh, next to uh, Molson Coors down in Milwaukee. But instead of adding yeast, uh, after we make the wort, um, we go through a couple different um, vacuum evaporations uh, in which uh, we're able to concentrate that wort very quickly from, say, a, a 12 Play-Doh uh, brew uh, to uh, 80 Play-Doh syrup um, relatively quickly. Um, and they're great. You know, it's not just... Uh, uh, being used on the homebrew market anymore, but they're they're great alternatives um, to help uh, increase alcohol in these big imperial beers, um, and they they do get used quite a bit from from pro brewers because um, they're looking to really uh, you know bump up those gravities and but uh, they don't have um, you know the, the the volume in their in their mash or, or their uh, uh, kettle, they could just simply add the extract to their kettle and, and uh, get the bricks that they're looking for. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess it's not quite the, the dirty word that it used to be um, in beer. No, I mean, our, our extracts are a hundred percent malt um, just like you would uh, your, your normal brew. Um, but like I said, a hundred percent natural and, and uh, really um like I said, the only thing we're doing difference is uh, um, concentrating it instead of adding yeast and making beer to it. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, I, we're obviously on this show talking to smaller brewers, the nano brewers that, that are out there. Um, and sometimes there is, um, you know, worries about, you know, well, buying a pallet or, um, you know, placing orders, uh, you know, if they don't have the space for it or uh, the, the, the initial capacity to it. Um, what have you learned over the years? What, what are some, some of the, the, the tips that you've had for um, maximizing an order from a larger provider such as you so that brewers can either have a diversity of styles or, um, you know, make the most for, the beers that they want to make. Yeah, I would say um, a couple things we we've done uh, is we have a minimum order quantity of of, uh, of a two thousand pound uh, pallet or a full pallet, uh, depending on if you're buying some extracts. It may not be quite two thousand pounds, but a full pallet of product is really what we want to be uh, moving uh, when we're working directly. Uh, with brewers uh, and but th those pallets can be uh, it doesn't have to be all of one grain so it, it, it can be uh, mixed and matched and so I would really say if you know to try to find at least a corner of your facility to <laughs> you know at, at least hold uh, you know uh, um, 40 bags of grain uh, is, is definitely uh, hopefully doable but if you can't um, we've been uh, trying to make available, uh, we work with several great uh, distributors all over the country. 
Uh, our main partner is Country Malt Group, mm -hmm. uh, but we also work with some uh, regionals in particular areas um, that may serve uh, certain locales a little better. Um, and uh, so there should be somebody close to you um, that would be able to serve you at less than pallet orders uh, and, and have a, a decent freight because they'll likely be closer to you depending on where you are in the country than where we are in Wisconsin. Gotcha. Um, you know, I, I think as we get into this um, uh, post-COVID era, uh, I I've seen just from my own drinking, um, a trend towards some of the more malt forward beers You know, American, uh, wheat ales, uh, I think are, are rising in popularity. Um, hazy IPAs have certainly helped, um, uh, bring malt into a conversation in a, in a very hop forward beer. Um, and, and hops are easy to explain. Um, it's complicated, but it's easy to explain. Um, to a general consumer um, malt I, I think has had a little bit more difficulty in the um in the general public uh in, in communicating uh flavors and nuance and um and its importance how do you have the conversation with brewers or how would you have the conversation with brewers of bringing malt into the consumer conversation to help forge a, a better relationship with beer yeah, that's a uh, that that's a great question. Um, I always say, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, hops are really sexy, and everybody likes uh, talking about them. And it always amazes me as I'm at a beer festival how even the general consumer um, will talk about the hops that they're tasting inside the beer, and you rarely hear that uh, when it comes to the malt. Um, so some of the things as, as all brewers know, uh, uh, malt is really, uh, the, the soul of the beer. I mean, yep. You're getting some, some flavor, uh, from, uh, uh, the, the aroma hops, uh, and some bitterness from, from your, your bittering hops. Uh, but really all of the color is certainly coming from, and, and a good portion of the flavor mouthfeel, uh, head retention uh, is all coming from the malts that you're using in your beers. Um, and so it's really uh, just trying to start that conversation uh, and, and really asking them, you know, what kind of flavors are they, they wanting to achieve? Uh, and then we're able to work with them on uh, what kind of malts uh, they, they like or could use to, to, to achieve some of those flavors. Um, Although I must say, uh, I do see more and more people. Uh, in fact, I uh, just responded to uh, a gentleman on my Instagram uh, account who I, I saw was brewing a Pilsner beer. And uh, before he talked about the hops he used in the beer, um, he was talking about all of the different malts that he had in his beer. And he was using a little bit of our Ashburn Mild. So I thanked him. Uh, but uh I'm hoping uh, I'll know malt has come uh, and full circle or has won when I'm standing in that beer fest and I hear somebody says, oh, this must have some breeze caramel malt in it. Still waiting for that day. <laughs> <laughs> um, if folks want to follow you on Instagram, where, where do they find you? Uh, at M-A-S-C-A-N 
Z-E-L. Okay. One, wait, one more time, because that was a lot of letters. Yeah. I just assumed it was going to be, you know, like malt brew or something. Yeah, but what? one more time. Yeah, it's um, at M-A-S-C-A-N-Z-E-L. Perfect. Hey, thanks for being on the show this month and and, and sharing your insights. And um, I, I, I really appreciate it. Hope uh, the rest of uh, 23 and uh, harvest season uh, goes really well for you guys. Appreciate it, John. Thank you very much. More in a moment, but first a note from this episode sponsors, and we hope you'll give them a closer look. Fermentus. Yeast is an incredible living microorganism. We've known for many years now that yeast has a crucial impact on the flavor profile and other sensory properties of beverages. It affects a wide range of characteristics, such as fruity and floral notes, phenolic or spicy character, the body of the beer, and more. Fermentus Beer Yeast Strain lineup is designed to answer the requirements of all brewers, so release your creativity. Visit Fermentus.com to discover more about yeast behavior and characterization. Also, don't forget, you can get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. Learn from craft beer experts, watching replays of past Nanocon seminars, plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash nanoplus for more details. Now into the brew house to talk about growing, brewing grains, and telling a story of the land through beer. Brett Bullock is a sixth-generation farmer and co-founder of New Jersey's first farm brewery, Screamin' Hill. He grew up on Bullock Farms, a 170-acre farm founded in 1860 in Cream Ridge, New Jersey. After graduating from the University of Vermont with a degree in plant and soil science and spending eight years working in sales and production for ornamental tree nurseries, he returned to his roots and joined his family's farming business. A love of homebrewing and an interest in expanding the farm's agritourism led Brett and his partners to start Screamin' Hill Brewery on the family farm in 2014. I I love talking to Jersey brewers um, because I, I I'm allowed to let my my the, the pride that I have in the Great Garden State come out. Um, but I love even more talking with Jersey farmers because the other 49 states don't get it when we talk about us being the Garden State. Um, tell me about the farm. Tell me about why agriculture is so important in New Jersey and then how it relates to beer today. Yeah. So, I mean, for, for my family, for us, agriculture is kind of just been a way of life forever. My family's been here for a really long time. Um, my ancestors bought this piece of land. This originally it was a hundred acres in 1860, uh, and my family has been farmers ever since. And even prior to that, we were just about 15 minutes away over in Chesterfield. We had a big farm. So my family has very deep agricultural roots in New Jersey. Um, and, uh, you know, I grew up as a farm kid and came back to work on the farm in my in my uh, 20s. Um, so the farm is just, you know, to my family, it's just it's our life. It's it's a way of life. It's just what we've always done. Um, and uh 
you know, as you said, a lot of other places don't realize that New Jersey is so agricultural. Um, so it's always something, you know, I've, when I went to college in Vermont, I was spent some time living in Utah and um, people just downright don't believe you when you say you live on a farm. <laughs> in New Jersey. It's just, I would get in arguments with people and say there are no farms in Jersey. But, okay. Huh? And that's where the other half of the Jersey comes out is just the immediate willingness to fight with people. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. <laughs> it is. It is funny that people are so, uh, you know, they said, well, I've never been there, but there's no farms. So, okay. Yeah. Well, it's but, the view from yeah, the airport, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Everybody sees what they see when they come and, you know, come to these areas. So, um, but I think one of the great things that we're doing now on our farm is, is agritourism, which is getting, you know, families, customers to come right on our farm and experience the farm and purchase things directly. So we do pick your own pumpkins, cut your own Christmas trees, um, and it gets people out to the farm. And that's kind of our thing is we want people to be able to experience the farm and learn about agriculture and learn about why it is so important. And then the brewery is this really awesome extension of that, where we get to sort of uh, teach people and show people how agriculture ties directly into beer and how, you know, there is no beer without agriculture. Like this, this stuff is an agricultural product and we can grow it here. Uh, and it can be, you know, something that, is, is really delicious. And it's, it's something that we're really proud of to be able to do. And we're so fortunate to have the opportunity to be able to do that, to have this, like, you know, we we're fortunate enough to have this beautiful farm where we can invite people to do that. Um, and it's been a, it's kind of been kind of a cool change. You know, I grew up on a grain farm where we just grew corn, soybeans, wheat, and rye, and, you know, we did 1500 acres and now we're down to like 300 or 400 acres, but we're focusing more on, you know, pumpkins and barley for beer and, and sort of trying to make that connection for people that like these products that, you know, and love come from a family farm. So how did that shift happen? Right. Uh, to, to, to switching to barley specifically for beer versus some of those other crops that have maybe wider commercial appeal. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. That was, I mean, kind of just sort of an accident. I, I could say like my partner, Ryan and I had been homebrewing together for 10 or 12 years. And, um, you know, we always bullshitted about starting a brewery. Um, and, uh, you know, I came back to work on the family farm and then we started thinking, oh, if we could, if we could marry this brewery idea, you know, we both lived at the shore at the time. So we would hang out at the boathouse in Belmar every Friday night and like nice. dream of a brewery. And, uh, and then I was like, well, what if we combined it with the farm? What if we put the brewery on the farm? And then I was like, oh, I could grow the barley and the hops and stuff. Um, so we kind of just did it as a hobby. Thinking I, it I do love that, that this idea was born out of pints at the bar because like, it, it has that sort of quixotic. Yes. You know, you know what we should do? Yes. And then, yeah. But then you I mean, followed through the next morning, which is great. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't quite that direct, but we were, you know, young <laughs> dumb enough to, and naive enough to think that we could do this as a hobby and, and not quit our day jobs and quickly realize that was a very, very dumb. Uh, but fortunately, it worked out. And uh, but that's kind of how the switch happened. It wasn't like a conscious decision that, oh, we need to we need to get away from commercial grain and start into this. Like, you know, we think of barley as a fresh market grain, like a, it's more of like growing a tomato because you have to pay very close attention to it. It's worth a lot more and it's uh, it's a value product. Um, so it's it wasn't necessarily a conscious decision, although our farm has been shifting that way. We started doing cut your own Christmas trees in the 90s. Um, and then, you know, we did wholesale pumpkins for 20 years and then switched that over to pick your own, you know, you start to kind of, as a farmer, you just have to be adaptable. Like my family's been fortunate. I think the reason we're still here is that we've been fortunate enough that everybody's sort of adapted. You know, my dad didn't do what my grandfather did. My grandfather didn't do what my, his father did. 
um, you know, we're always sort of evolving and changing. I think you have to be open to that change. And as much as there's a lot of times that none of us here want to be having thousands of people on the farm, you know, we, we miss the days when it was just us here kind of left to our own devices, but it's a, you know, it's a whole new, it's just a whole new ball game. And, uh, it has been, it has been a lot of fun. So as you've been doing the switch then, and I mean, I love the idea of agritourism and you know, here in Jersey right now, this weekend that we're recording this, you know, I've been getting uh, notes from the farms that I follow of, you know, come pick your own strawberries or, um, you know, they're, they're, that'll lead into, I guess, blueberries. It'll lead into to sunflowers and, 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 and all of that. And then pumpkins and Christmas trees and everything. Um, but I love to be able to connect to, you know, what I'm eating or what I'm looking at that way. And I, I know that's the big appeal to um, agritourism. How has the conversation evolved now with beer? Yeah, so we're just kind of trying to continue that same conversation that, you know, getting people to, you know, instead of like, I guess, instead of pick your own, it's drink your own, you know, come, come drink your own beer in the field next to the field that it was that it was born in. And, and um, we're trying to convey that message that, you know, we grow our beer um, and that our barley, you know, our focus is our focus is barley. Um, we, we don't grow a lot of hops, but barley is really our focus. We like to say that barley is the soul of beer. Um, you know, it's the backbone of, of, of beer and just trying to get people excited about barley is a little bit difficult because hops is kind of the sexy thing. You know, it's the easy thing when you pick a beer up, you know, you, you, you just instantly hit with hops, um, most of the time, depending on the beer, but, you know, getting into that malt takes a little bit more thought and a little bit more nuance to think about. Um, so we're trying to get people to do that. And then connect it back to, you know, how our beer starts, which is in the field um, and getting people to appreciate sort of the uniqueness of growing our own malt because it is a, you know, it's a single variety for an entire year. It was grown in one field. It's, you know, deeply affected by weather, variety, the soil, you know, so it's, there's all these changes that you don't necessarily get with mass produced malt because it's a combination of tons of different grains from all over the place. And they sort of blend it together to make this analysis that they like, but ours is just, it is what it is. So we have to figure out how to brew with it. Uh, even if it's a, challenging malt year, which we've had, um, and the maltsters have a hell of a time malting it, you know, we still have to figure out a way to brew with it. So it's like that sort of, um, you know, unique character of sort of like one singular malt that may not be perfect, but is super fresh and delicious. Yeah. So how have you found success or at least the evolution of um, in having that conversation with the drinkers, right? Because I mean, hops are, I know probably most craft beer drinkers understand hops or think they understand hops and you can talk about, you know, Oh, we'll smell the tangerine or smell the, you know, the dankness or, or whatever. And people can sort of immediately get it. Um, when you're talking about barley to folks um, to keep it interesting, uh, because as we do see more craft maltsters come online and more, breweries using locally grown grains. I think these conversations are going to be more important to rally the consumers behind it. So, so when you're sitting down at the bar with somebody on the other side, who's just bought a pint um, and is curious, how are you communicating it? 
Um, well, first of all, we're trying to brew beers uh, or trying to always have some beers on that sort of speak to that, like very simple. We have a very simple lager called Bullock's Lager, just named after the farm where we, you know, you can you can give somebody a little taste of that and just sort of explain that what you're getting out of that beer is literally just our fields because it's a single malt, very low hop sort of, you know, old school, almost hella style lager. Um, and uh, we're super proud of that beer. So we try to have something like that on where we can say, hey, taste this. And like, you know, this is a stripped down beer that is absolutely delicious. And it's just our malt. Um, and you can kind of get them to sort of um, appreciate it more by having something that they can taste that is so simple. Um, where you're not getting knocked over with hops and, and all this other specialty malt and stuff. Um, but it is a difficult conversation to have. It's difficult to get people to, to care sometimes, but, um, I think even if they don't care, you know, even if they don't get really excited about craft malt, and even if they're, they're not jumping up and down and clamoring to get the next craft malt made beer, um, I feel like it's sort of a win just to have them make that connection. Even if they can like go, Oh, okay, this, this is a product from here. This is something that's local. Um, just even just getting them that information is, is kind of awesome. And then, you know, hopefully they love it and, and sort of run with it. You know, we we're, we're members of the Northeast grain shed Alliance and we have the craft malt seal. We're actually working on getting that on all of our cans to say that our brewery is craft malt certified, which I think is a very cool thing, which kind of helps tell that story. Um, I don't know much about that certification actually. It's it's kind of new. I think we joined a couple of years ago, but it's through the um uh oh no, I'm sorry, that was through the Craft Maltsters Guild, uh, the Craft Malt Seal. Uh so we're members of that as well. And uh I forget exactly, you just have to use a certain amount of malt, but we're you know, we use all our own malt in, in every beer, so except for specialty, you know, malts. But um, so our our brewery is craft malt certified. We have the seal, you know, hanging up behind the bar. Um, so that's another thing that kind of helps tell the story. Uh, helps get awareness out there. And then we're also, we do this thing called the square foot project um, where you sort of, it has a calculator and you can calculate how many square feet of field of, of uh, grain field is in a product. So, you know, we're using it for beer so we can calculate that on average, every pint has four square feet of barley in it. Um, so we do an event once a year where we sort of, it's all about that story and we do hay rides around the farm and I give guided tours uh, and, and talk about malt, um, more than people want to hear it, but we're just trying to, <laughs> <that point. laughs> um, you know, I, I, that's sort of the interesting thing. I, 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 just, I don't know if this is going to be an eloquent question or not, probably not, but, um, you said if people want to hear it, am I trying to force this issue of, okay, you know, people do want to hear about the ingredients or if the beer tastes good and you can say hey, yeah you're just drinking where you're coming from uh or you know you're drinking a beer where the ingredients came from here i should say um is that just enough for most people it's got to be a comp they've got to like the beer um you know you can't just give somebody some crap lager and say this was grown here and expect them to care like i feel like they've got to be able to enjoy it and um yeah that's yeah, I don't know. It's tough. We kind of struggle with that. We ask ourselves that a lot too. Like, um, you know, I think, I think people do care. I think people do enjoy it. Um, what we find fascinating sometimes is people come in and like are surprised 
that we grow it. You know, they don't make the connection unless you tell them. Like we've had customers that have been here for years and they're like, oh, you guys grow your own barley? And we're like, God, we're doing a terrible job of conveying this story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it happens every once in a while where you're like, God, what do we, this is, it's, it, it is at times difficult to get people to acknowledge it. And like, you know, cause sometimes people just want to come hang out with friends and drink beer. They don't want right. to be, they, they don't care. So yeah, I think it's you gotta you gotta keep hammering the point home and and hopefully catch them when they care. I guess, um, you know, you're not gonna get everybody. And at the end of the day, as long as they're enjoying the beer, and you know, our our focus is not on just growing local beer, but like we're we're like we're very dedicated to making you know what we hope people think is good beer. And you know, because it's it's one thing to be able to grow beer, but people have to like it. It's it's got to be something enjoyable. Yeah. Um, so. I think um, having a quality product in a place where people want to hang out and spend time and um, you know, it all helps tell the story. What are the challenges for you as a brewer with working with small batch grain? Um, you know, it's the variability um, is difficult. Uh, I mean, I, I can't say enough good things about Hillary and Blair at rabbit Hill. They do a phenomenal job of yeah. malting consistently. Um so, you know, that was a struggle early on uh, before we were using Rabbit Hill where batch, you know, batch to batch malt was just, just all over the place. You know, So you're growing on your farm, but using them to malt it for you. Yes. Hillary okay. malts everything yeah. that we, that we brew, that we grow. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think the, you know, it's, we try to dial it in by the year, but we're always messing with our brewing sort of protocols and our, our SOPs to try to coax the most out of the malt, but Hillary can get a really, uh, a really nice analysis out of our grain. You know, she can produce a malt with a really good analysis, tons of enzymes, tons of, um, you know, um, uh, it can convert easily. It is very good malt, but sometimes it's, um, it's a little bit difficult uh, based on our barley, you know, we've had years where our barley just was very difficult to malt. Um, and Hillary was fortunately able to, <laughs> to do it, but, um, uh, it created challenges. The, I think that one of the biggest challenges is this logistics of moving small batches of malt and keeping it, storing it, uh, transportation. Um, it's, it's logistically, it's kind of a nightmare because we don't just have a pallet show up every once in a while. We have to, it's a lot of planning and a lot of, uh, uh, coordinating with Hillary and Blair. Yeah. Uh, Rabbit Hill. But, um, it's, uh, you know, we, we've, <laughs> we had one year where our barley, we had pre-harvest sprouts where our entire field started to germinate before we harvested it out in the oh, field, gosh. which was a nightmare. And <laughs> once that biological <laughs> process starts, you know, you can't stop it. So we had Hillary malt an entire year's worth of malt between, I want to say August and, you know, November. So we had, what we should do is malt, you know, a couple of delivery, you know, once a month, she, she brings us up, you know, whatever, 6,000 pounds or something like that, or I go down and get it, but we did an entire year. And then it just sat there in those totes and, you know, it got buggy. We threw out tons of it. It was a complete disaster. Um, so that's what drove us. We we're now growing a different variety that will not sprout in the field. Um, which then pr proposes its own challenges on the sure. other end. But it's a learning process, you know, it's as you're, cause we're still at this, not the beginning of this, uh, uh, this, this phase in beer, but it's certainly, there's still a lot to be learned. For sure. Yeah. 
And we're, you know, we would never even be able to do this if my dad wasn't a grain farmer. It's like we have a combine, we have all the infrastructure, we have tons of grain bins, we have augers, grain handling equipment. You know, this is, it's, it's such a difficult thing to just like go out and do from, from scratch. You know, we were fortunate that we were able to pivot just by switching from wheat, you know, to barley. Um, but it's not something, you know, like as you said, we're still figuring it out and you can't figure it out without spending all this money on infrastructure. And we were just fortunate to be able to have it. So we were able to kind of wing it and dad already knew, you know, we already had the knowledge of growing grain. Um, it's definitely different growing malting barley, as I said, but, um, it's, it's still, you know, we're still learning. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, right? Because I, I think that there's a lot of people who could get into brewing, you know, if you have a home brewing background or you want to go to school for it to learn how to do it and you can, um, you know, order your raw ingredients, you can have your equipment, you can be making the beer. I think there is this, this evolution now of, you know, well, we also want to farm or, you know, we want to be able to, to say, you know, we grew everything here that that's going into the pipe, but having an actual farming background um, or people who understand how to grow things on a large scale in a field. Um, I, I imagine you would suggest to people have somebody with you that knows what they're doing on that realm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's something you can figure out, but it's real, like the, just the, um, you know, the investment to, to be able to do it is, is so cost prohibitive. Um, you know, I worry even now about, <laughs> we've scaled back our operations so much um, that when our, our uh, current combine craps the bed, which it eventually will, um, you know, we used to grow, when we bought that combine, we were probably growing, you know, 800,000 acres of grain. Now we're doing 400. So it's going to be really hard to justify buying a new combine uh, just to grow 30 acres of malting barley. But um, like, those are the challenges. It's, it's such a, um, uh, it's such an expensive business to be in um, to, to farm just the equipment and stuff. So to start, it's really hard. You kind of just have to yeah, either know somebody that has a farm partner with somebody. And I've had this conversation with tons of people, like you said, that want to open a brewery and, and connect it to farming. Cause it is a, you know, it's a, it's a fun, fantastic concept. Um, but it is a difficult thing to accomplish. We just got lucky that we had this family farm. I dig it. Um, as you think about the future of craft malt and beer, right? And I want to kind of bring it back to Jersey where most people think, you know, oh, there's a, uh, uh, it's all it is, is just cities and and a giant Anheuser-Busch um, uh, brewery outside of the, the airport window kind of thing. Um, but there are major cities throughout the, 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 the country and there's a lot of breweries in those. Um, how, how can locally grown malt, small batch malt, um, malt coming from farms like yours and then maltsters like uh, Hillary and Blair. Um, how can, what's the future look like between those breweries that are not on a farm and small batch malts in your mind? I hope it's, you know, I hope it thrives. I hope people, um, you know, continue to care about where their food or drink comes from. And then, you know, that, um, that the brewers want to brew with local grain. Cause I think a lot of times brewers do want to brew with local grain, but it's just a little bit more difficult. You know, it's a little bit more expensive. It's one extra step. It's like a, a little bit, 
you know, it's not as easy as just calling up country malt and ordering a pallet. Um, but I think it really comes down to, you know, it's difficult for a, for a maltster to start. You know, fortunately, we have Hillary and, you know, there's Double Eagle over in Pennsylvania who we've used uh, years ago um, that also does a nice job. But I kind of feel like it hinges on these malt houses, you know, keeping with it, you know, and I and I and I hope that they do. You know, our, our original plan was to include a malt house, but then quickly realized how that was an entirely different business and a whole new <laughs> thing to figure out. So we we quickly put the kibosh on that. Um, uh, but I think I, I think people will continue to do it. Um and to get excited about it. I mean, I, I saw you at the at the Craft Malt uh, Guild uh, trade show up there. And I think, yeah, the conference up know, in Maine. Yeah. It's, I love going to those things and seeing that there are other people that are excited about this. And I think the more people get into this business as this, because it's still, you know, this is a pretty young industry in New Jersey, really. This whole taproom concept and, yep. and this growth of, of taprooms and, and breweries in general in New Jersey is fairly new. Um, so I think as the as the industry evolves in New Jersey, I think people are going to continue to like find out like as they grow. All right, well, what's the next awesome thing we can do? Like, how can we continue to approve? And I feel like switching to more local ingredients has got to be part of that evolution. Um, and I think we're in a society where people care where their where their products come from, um, and farming is kind of, you know. I don't know if exciting is the right word, but it's cool. Like when I was a kid, it was not cool to be a farm kid, but now <laughs> being a farmer is like a cool thing. It feels it's very different um, than when I was growing up. And uh, you know, so I think that all plays into sort of um, I think it's going to be successful and people are going to want to use craft malt. And I think if we can continue to tell the story of why it's better and why it's unique, you know, if we, you know, I, I, I think there's a ton of potential. I hope so. I love the optimism and I'm, I'm here for it. So, um, Brett, thanks for, for taking the time and being on the show this month. I really appreciate it. John, thank you for having me on. It was, it was a lot of fun. What are your malt forward beers that you're proud of? Tell us by emailing us. It's nano at BYO.com or better yet tag BYO on all of the various BYO social media channels. I'll invite you to head over to BYO.com slash nano podcast. There you can subscribe to the newsletter, the magazine, and catch up with great pro brewing content. New episodes of this show are released on the 15th of every month. So subscribe now and never miss a show when it's released. And you can do us all a favor by leaving feedback on your podcast platform of choice or by emailing us at nano at BYO.com. And again, you can check in with us on all of the BYO social media channels. As always, thanks to this episode's sponsors. Fermentus. Yeast is an incredible living microorganism. We've known for many years now that yeast has a crucial impact on the flavor profile and other sensory properties of beverages. It affects a wide range of characteristics, such as fruity and floral notes, phenolic or spicy character, the body of the beer, and more. Fermentus Beer Yeast Strain lineup is designed to answer the requirements of all brewers, so release your creativity. Visit Fermentus.com to discover more about yeast behavior and characterization. Also, don't forget, you can get access to hundreds of hours of on-demand videos covering small craft brewery strategies with BYO's new Nano Plus membership. 
Learn from craft beer experts, watching replays of past NanoCon seminars, plus a complete library of in-depth workshops. You'll also have full online access to all of BYO's digital content and an annual print magazine subscription. Check out byo.com slash nanoplus for more details. I'm John Hall, and you can still find me weekly behind the microphone on the Drink Beer, Think Beer podcast from All About Beer. Find it where podcasts are found, and I hope you'll tune in. Our theme music was created by Scott McCampbell, and we thank him for that. And once again, be sure to check out byo.com slash nanopodcast for all of your nano brewing needs. And for now, we wish you all the best for a small but successful brew day. <laughs>